sorry, I sorry I was uh, late. Well, I'm not that late because you originally said we were going to record yesterday, so I, I'm not technically late. You can charge that to TFL and not running any overground services, so <laughs> not really my fault. Can't out, can't out, can't out. But uh, yeah, so we we are recording this on a lovely, cozy Sunday morning, and uh, Matt said eleven. And then text me very panicked at half ten saying, oh, can we do half eleven? I was like, yeah, sure. And uh, Matt, you want to tell everyone what you were doing? Yeah, I was, I was moisturizing, Tom. You know, like I was, um, I was looking after myself. Is that a crime in modern Britain? Apparently it is a so. crime now to uh, look after yourself. It took Matt an hour to moisturize himself from his forehead to his toes. He is soft right now. Soft. Well... You want to know? Actually, I do. I do have a, a nice um, tube of foot cream because I, I, I go climbing and my my feet are pretty gnarly after that. So, yeah, I am. I am moist. I'm moistened. I've got new. Gla- I've got new glasses after the municipal waste incident, so I can finally see properly. If anyone uh, doesn't know, uh, Matt lost his glasses in the pit at municipal waste after he headbutted me. Um, so he was yeah, running. Yeah, but, we, men- running- we mentioned it. Yeah, so um, you're very welcome to Beneath the Skin. Yeah, like moisturizer, it's Beneath the Skin. Hi. Um, the show about the history of everything told through the history of tattooing. I'm one of your hosts, Thomas Amhani, and I'm joined, as always, by my esteemed co-host, Dr. Matt Lauder. Hello. Um, yeah, as you know, as I quote in uh, in my book, right, Elizabeth Arden, the um, cosmetics company, put out a skincare, like, moisturizing cream ad in the 1930s that basically said... Having soft skin and not being tattooed is what separates us from the primitives. And here I am, undoing, you know, undoing human progress by moisturizing my tattoos. Um, Thomas, um, I heard on uh, on the rumor mill that um, you were uh, Ireland's worst influencer, but yet here you are holding an award. How did that happen? Earlier this week, we uh, were nominated and won best history podcast at the independent podcast awards here in the uk we had a lovely night we had a lovely night in king's cross and uh i i uh nearly had a heart attack sitting there waiting for our category to be read out and then against all odds because i convinced myself we weren't going to win in order to soften the blow if we didn't win and uh when we won i was uh overjoyed very emotional moment they sat us on top of the up in the balcony, so we were like, we're definitely not going to win because they wouldn't sit winners like miles away from the stage, and yet we won. Congratulations! I'm thank you, Tom. You uh, this is it's all you're doing. Uh, thank you very much, man, and thank you to everyone who listens as well. Obviously, the show isn't possible without the listeners, and uh, you make it all worth it. And speaking of that, a bit of housekeeping. Um, people had asked, and we have brought into action. People were wanting maybe. A lower Patreon tier because they wanted to support the show. As of present, which you will hear later in this show, we've gone fully independent, so that's no advertising, so it's fully supported by you, the listener. So we now have a £3 a month tier. You know, if you can kick us £3 a month, you get an extra episode. And also, we, the people have asked, the people have been shouting from the rooftops, and we have heard them, the people, the people, the listeners, um, We are doing Ink Master Season 15 starting next week. I have already watched the three episodes that are available. Matt has not. Tom is doing Ink Master Season 15. Matt is reluctantly being dragged along in his... In his wake with the <laughs> Master Fifteen, which as I suppose we'll, I suppose we might allude to, but we won't. Uh, has already started off with some controversy. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, bad times, yeah. bad bad times all around. Listening to him hear a grumpy tattoo historian um, getting crazy, of course. And actually, that first episode, that first episode will include a brief history of tattoo competitions and judging because. One of the things I've been writing for my next book this week is where the idea for judging tattoos come from uh, in the uh, the UK specifically. So I've got some good, interesting historical stuff as well as getting cross about Ink Master, which is what we try and do, even what I try and do at least, even through the Ink Master episodes, I'm trying to drop in some historical information where it comes up. 
and we'll include yeah we will include this some some hot off the presses research if you want to hear ink master um check it out at the three pound and above tier on patreon it's a patreon exclusive this year i know we did it for free last year but you know bill's got to get paid and uh with the three pound month tier <laughs> you also get an extra bonus episode at the five pound you get both bonus episodes a month and ink master eventually i will subject matt to season one of ink master i know people have asked for it we will do it eventually but anyway housekeeping over let's get on with the show so um the other thing that we did on my or i did on monday before i came to ha- meet you was be on another podcast i'm sorry i was cheating on beneath the skin um but i went and recorded an episode uh of cunning cast with the absolute historical legend uh that is tony robinson um tony robinson famous for playing baldrick and blackadder and the sheriff of nottingham in maid marion and for his kind of afterlife as the kind of cuddly face of british telly archaeology really kind of interesting grand figure of british kind of historical uh conversation in the public sphere um it was me and grace neutral uh, who said she's going to come on this show as well so we'll we, we, we'll finally sort that out me and my old friend Grace chatting to Tony Robinson about about tattoo history, um, and at the end of the recording, they said, or uh, the producer Tony said to me, "Oh, well, our next episode, we're going to transition from talking about tattooing to tat- our next episode is about the history of jelly." <laughs> and because this show, uh, this show, yeah, 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 but because so because this show, beneath the skin, is a show, as I say, about the history of everything, told the history of tattooing. I was like, I can normally get from a topic to um to tattooing pretty quickly and jelly initially had me stumped i was like off the top of my dome i couldn't come up with any immediate obvious link with um tattooing and jelly so i on the on the tube ride home i was looking in my um archive files and i found um uh an advert for Horitoyo, the japanese tattooer who was working in new york uh, who we've spoken about briefly in some of our japanese episodes um uh, when he was working in an Oriental supermarket in New York, uh, they also were selling in the Oriental section uh, guava jelly. But you know, we've talked about <laughs> we've talked about him already. And we've talked about the Orientalism, and so the uh, most of the other things that came up were either about Vaseline jelly, a tattoo healing, which we'll do um, is also on the long list for things to do in future. But the other thing that came up is what we're going to talk about today, or at least it's the in for what we'll talk about today. And I will read you the quote, and then. Quote, the sailor who wanted the ring was very nervous, and so was I. In order to tattoo the penis, one has to grasp it tightly on the sides with the thumb and second finger, pulling down with them or pushing up on the urethral canal with the index finger. The skin must be taut, or the needle will not penetrate. I was quite surprised as a sailor, I was quite as surprised as the sailor to see the reaction of the penis when the needle approached, it almost turned to jelly. It was endowed with a life of its own, seemingly much to our astonishment. As we were uh, brainstorming yesterday to try and decide, okay, what are we going to do? Because sometimes we have episode ideas long in advance. And sometimes we come up with them on the fly. And as I was sitting on the bus to Westfield Shopping Center yesterday, when we were going back and forth. Um, I suggested something to Matt, which is going to come out as our next bonus episode. Um, and he was like, why don't we do this person? And I was like, yeah, it's a good idea. And then I said, it's surprising the amount of times gay pornography, penises and stuff and other bodily ephemera like that come up on this show. Yeah. Well, um, because as we've talked about many times, uh, the history of, of, of queer tattooing and the history of gay men in particular is turning out the more that we look and the more that we find to be really important. So this today, Thomas, is the story of um, Dr. Samuel Stewart, uh, a.k.a. Phil Sparrow, a.k.a. Phil Andros, um, academic, English literature professor, tattoo artist, erotic fiction writer, uh, literary novelist, correspondent of Gertrude Stein, key research figure for Alfred Kinsey's groundbreaking study, Sex Life of the Human Male, uh, unincorrigible pervert, uh, tattoo theorist, 
really, really interesting, important figure. Um, w- w- difficult, amazing, just a wonderful, wonderful figure who everybody listening to this show should know about. Some of you will already ready, but uh, many of you won't, and that's what we want to do today. Basically, I was looking at my bookshelf, and as I said, I'd pulled up this slightly oblique jelly <laughs> reference, and I have um, at current count two, three, four, I have like eight or nine books, um, either by or about uh, Sam, Sammy, Phil on my bookshelf. Um, and so he stood out to me as something that I've been meaning to get around to talking to you about for a while, but haven't actually, uh, you know, we've not done a whole episode on him. So th- this starts today. So, um, you know, I, I the, the very first uh, quote in my book, in Painted People, um, is a quote from, from Sammy Stewart. Um, he basically said, uh, quote, Tattooing is a subject that, to be written about, demands a plunge into the waters, not a comfortable observer's beach chair at the side of the ocean. It's funny because, like, that is, for me, that's very much my opinion, is that, like, it's very hard to understand tattooing and the culture around it without being involved in it. And I think a lot of people kind of, and you know, as we mentioned earlier, Ink Master tries to portray that perspective of the non-tattooed into the tattooing world and it gets this weird kind of um not simulacra but uh this weird uh version of it yeah and and you know this is also true actually and we'll talk about this today like so that quote comes from um sam sammy's book uh bad boys and tough tattoos a social history of the tattoo with gangs sailors and street corner punks that was written in um 1990 he passed away in 1993. Um, but that book is his account of like trying to make sense of tattooing from the inside. Uh, but he also has, because of his experiences of how he got into tattooing, uh, because of what tattooing was to him, um, is also a very particular personal story, even though he tries for something um, more extensive. There's a really good uh, appendix at the back of the book that is called A Note on the Literature of Tattooing, where he basically slags off every single book on the history of tattooing in ways that you know I've also do- I've also done followed in his footsteps. Um, he was ahead of me in being critical of modern primitives. These arguments that I have friendly conversations I've had with Paul King. <laughs> For anyone interested, we have a wonderful talk that we saw Paul give on Fakir Mushafar that I am slowly editing that will be out very soon. So you can you can get Paul's perspective and Matt's perspective. Yeah, um, of that book, Sammy said uh, of Modern Primitives. Sammy says an extraordinarily bizarre book entitled Modern Primitives contains many examples of modern tattooing. Uh, its most valuable sections are those devoted to Don Ed Hardy. We'll come to that later on, and one or two other tattoo artists. But most of the work is anecdotal and reminiscent of the old-fashioned fads and fancies of the sixties. Its scholarship is suspect, and its pretend presented oddities quite dangerous for the novice to imitate. Um, but so, so you know, that book's a, a really important book. I think up until um, the work of Adam McDade recently probably the only scholarly or pseudo scholarly in Sammy's sense work written by a PhD or a PhD academic who also was a tattoo artist about the process of tattooing. Um, really, really interesting and very rare perspective. So let's talk about Sa- Sammy and his journey into tattooing because it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, so one of the stories, and this is um, the best book on Sammy uh, the one that really brought his story initially to the world's attention is a book called Secret Historian, The Life and Times of Samuel Stewart, Professor, Tattoo Artist and Sexual Renegade by an American author called Justin Spring. Happens actually Spring to be an art historian. That book came out in 2010. Um, one of the, one of the, one of the, one of the um, things that Spring des- describes as, as the reason that Stewart got into tattooing was being um, ignored during an orgy. <laughs> what? Sometimes um, when, I, when I sit down to record this show, I just never really know what's going to come up. I mean, look, that, 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 that would be hard. That would be heartbreaking, a heartbreaking experience. 
He was now repeated. He was repeatedly finding himself ignored or passed over in sexual situations, as contact after contact instead shows someone younger and more attractive. The situation was particularly maddening for him, since in most instances he was setting up the very orgies at which he, at which he was being rejected. Oh, that's even worse. That. That's even worse. Uh, after a Jay-Z tane at his apartment, he recorded that among the nine young men present, only one had paid him any attention, leading him once more to wonder if, quote, he ought to, ought to give it up gracefully before they're talking about me as an old auntie grows too painful. <laughs> that is brilliant. Right, That's so... so funny. <laughs> so, um, as ever, it's a bit more complicated than that. So, uh, Samuel Stewart was born in 1909 in woodsfield ohio so he's really you know literally a man of another century mm. um he passed away as i said in uh, 1993 so he lived you know his 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 life and his tattooing career and his writing career tracks the 20th century he got a phd in literature um from ohio state university in 1990 uh, 1927 and he Damn. became basically a professor of literature yeah um, he was a gay man uh, in America at a time when being gay was illegal. Um, and again, this comes up uh, very particularly later on in his life. Um, so he he's teaching at colleges uh, literature and he fancies himself initially as a grand literary novelist right this is sort of like the real grand period of modernist literature mm -hmm. and he writes a novel in 1936 called angels on the bow mm. um and angels on the bow gets an absolutely incredibly good review in the new york times um also uh just a just just a quick correction matt i'm gonna do a benoit on it he started college in 1927 oh Oh, okay. I mean, that's a that's a real that's a real niche that's a real niche uh, correction. Um, <laughs> sure. Before, okay, Benwell. I know you're. I know you're listening. I'm just doing your work for you. I'm gonna. I'm gonna double double check that live. I'm gonna because I. I'm gonna. I'm gonna double check that absolutely live now. Here we go. Well, if he was if he was born in 1909, he would have if. He would have gotten, if you're correct, he would have gotten his PhD when he was 16. That's a good point. Uh, yeah, university years, 1927, got his PhD in 1934. There we go. Look at me with my notes badly written. Thank you, Thomas. He wasn't some pr child prodigy. Um, he, wasn't a, he wasn't a Doogie Hauser. <laughs> Doogie Hauser. Um, so, he, yeah, so he, okay, he, his, first, his first book came out in. Um, uh, in uh, 1936 and as i said it got this incredible review in the new york times which basically kind of um praises him as this like incredible first novelist right like this is his first book um the new york times the novel is the novel is this sort of story of this kind of young ingenue woman um who is having a sort of difficult life. This is the this is the quote, right? He gets um called uh Mr. Stewart uses the method of the monologue anterior, not in a clunky polygot riddle like Joyce, nor a long attenuated lyrical flight as Wolf, but rather the more direct dramatic subjectivism that goes back to Henry James. I do not mean to say this author in his first creative step walks with the giants, but he's certainly walking in the same direction. And without them, he could not have disclosed this wry, ironic searching group of mental close-ups. Um, so he's being compared, right, by the New York Times, which is, you know, even, even you know, serious now, but even back in the 1930s, it was a very serious piece. To get a book review in the New York Times is a real big deal. And they're comparing him with, like, James Joyce, and Henry James and Virginia Woolf, like it's, it's it's kind of amazing that he, that he's potentially this incredible product, like literary prodigy. But basically, the book doesn't sell very well. So, it, and in fact, it gets him in a bit of trouble because it has a it's not a particularly by contemporary standards racy book, but it has some the, the main female character is a. Uh, does some sex work. I don't think it would be even right to call her a sex worker. Uh, and it's a little bit too racy for the conservative English, English department that he's working in. 
Um, and it doesn't sell very well, and and basically thus ends his um, university or his his literary career. The book does actually get him quite connected with Gertrude Stein, um, the, the really influential Parisian um, poet, friend of Picasso's, etc., which who becomes a lifelong friend and and Gertrude Stein's life uh, you know um, life partner Alice B. Toklas with whom Sammy's a, um, a regular correspondent. So it does sort of link him in, but it becomes, I think, one of the things that Justin Spring notices about Sammy's life is that he's this really, up until Justin put his life story together, he's this really interesting footnote in loads of other people's stories. So he's this really interesting footnote in the history of modernist American fiction. He's this really interesting footnote in the sort of pantheon of, of Parisian Grandes who correspond regularly with Gertrude Stein and Alice B. Toklas. Um, he's this kind of figure that spans all these strange inter- interconnected histories without really ever rising to individual prominence. And what happens is he he comes to really, really hate students and get really annoyed <laughs> about how stupid they are. Um, so he thinks basically that he's better than this, right? He's teaching bored students in a university in the 1930s and 40s and basically resents it. And a lot of his origin story is about how much he hates his students and how much he thinks they're boring and how much he hates academia. And um, uh, he says his students grew duller duller and more stupid by the year. Time is a flat circle. Well, I was, as I was preparing for this episode yesterday, I was sending some um, on my on our group chat at work. Like, so one of the other weird things that he did was write a column for a dental magazine. Okay. So in the nineteen forties, he wrote a, a column uh, under the name of Phil Sparrow for the Illinois Dentistry Journal. Um, and the first column is based like a patient's eye view of being a dental patient. But uh, but then the essays just become just more general. It's a very weird column, but it's an interesting thing to read. They are they, the letters have been published in a book called Phil Sparrow Tells All: Lost Essays by Samuel Stewart. And um, there's an es- there's an essay in there called On Teaching, right? Um, again, from November 1947, <laughs> where he says, um, uh, like. Of course, teachers, the best teachers are accomplished actors. And I will, I will admit it's very pleasant to have an audience. You can put on a great show once a day, though it's all about, that's all about some teachers do. Um, then he says, uh, the audience you have is pretty terrible. Most classes are stupid. So stupid that when you walk in and say good morning, they will all write it down in their notebooks. They just sit there looking as if they were painted on their seats and stare at you with the same lively expression you might find on a potato. Roasted. He he got Roasted. their ass. Please don't clip that and say it's me saying it about my students. Oh, I'm hundred um, percent doing that. He also says in Bad Boys and Tough Tattoos, um uh like none of oh, yeah, here we go. Um the student body of the nineteen fifties was cowed, clannish, and conformist. Every member of the English department had to take take a charge of an entering freshman class. Um not one of the forty odd boys and girls in my class has heard of Homer. Um, of 250 students in my year, three or four grew to be illuminated or liberalized. The others were, were content with beer, TV, and sex. Right. So he's, 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 he's grumpy. He, he's cross with everybody. He thinks everyone he works with is stupid, boring, conservative, um, lazy, uninteresting. Um, <laughs> he's not paid very well. Uh, he complains about how academics aren't getting enough money, like all all kinds of stuff. Once again, that, t- time is a flat exactly, circle. Exactly, it's astonishing. Um, he has whole complaints uh, about you know, like oh, if you're too, if you dress properly, everyone thinks you're too obsessed with fashion. If you don't dress properly, everyone thinks you're you're um, unkempt. If you give someone a good book review, it must be because you're their friend. If you give it a bad book review, it's because you're jealous. Like all of the things that academics moan about today, he was moaning about. Academia has not changed at all in the intervening um, like nearly century. One of the other things that soured him on academia was that he 
basically developed a stalker. Some a young girl in his class like started becoming obsessed with him, and like almost like in that scene in Indiana Jones, like writing "I love you" on her, you know, on eyelids. It was that kind of thing. She turned up to his house. The university didn't do anything about it. Um, on your on your barking up the wrong tree. <laughs> very much so. Right. Very very much so. Um, because yeah, the other thing that was defining in Sammy's life was his voracious sexual appetite. So he was a gay man, as I said, at a time when being gay was illegal, um, but was very shameless as much as that was possible. Um, as as we said already, he'd stage orgies at his house. Um, he'd go out and pick guys up. When he was 16, um, although he didn't get a PhD, when Rudolph Valentino was playing uh, uh, in town, he went to Valentino's hotel room, had sex with him, and kept a trophy of his pubic hair. <laughs> made a um, made a like kind of uh, like vanit like a sort of you know uh, like vanitas kind of trophy, and. Because he was uh, an academically minded man, he also kept what became known as his stud file, which was a record of every single man he had sex with. Um, Their name, their job, their penis size, who came, if he had a good time, all this kind of thing, Um, much of which has now been published in another book. One of those books that you complain about, Tom, that I mentioned, uh, a book that came out called obscene diary that i've got a copy of it's in my office actually but it's i think about 700 pounds if you try and find it now okay side 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 note on this recently gentleman's tattoo flash if you want good tattoo books look up gentleman's tattoo flash they had a full collection of tattoo time 400 quid i was on the tube when it went on sale and couldn't buy it no no what about it in a heartbeat i it's obscenely expensive but to have that is a dream of mine all first yeah so um anyway the obscene diary is super interesting so so he was he was this voracious uh you know guy and as he basically he found that as he got older he found it harder to meet guys basically like he really liked hot sailor boys basically hot sailor men you know young virile like military guys and he he increasingly as he got older found it difficult to pick them up um in in bars the circumstances around homosexuality in america in the 40s and 50s were also changing with the cold war um, mccarthyism being gay in public life in america was a real risk um you could be fired from your job um and so uh essentially he was like how can i how can i meet uh, hot sailor boys without the, uh, a decreased risk of actually getting beaten up. And the story essentially is that he gets into tattooing. Um, he thinks like I can meet some hot, some hot sailors uh, if I tattoo them. Um, so the story of him becoming a tattoo artist, I think, is is super interesting and important as well. He starts doing it outside of um, uh, teaching hours, basically, or, or, or teaching terms when he's teaching in in Chicago. So he says um, in his autobiography, so he half wrote an autobiography um, that wasn't finished. Some of it was released as chapters from an autobiography, and then it was edited um, more recently into a more completed version called The Lost Autobiography of Samuel Stewart. Uh, um, He basically says um, he started meeting these hot, tattooed guys and he thought he found it sexually attractive and he figured he'd kind of give it a go so um he took on the name phil sparrow um which he drawn from john skelton's 15th century poem the book of philip sparrow um a lady's lament for the death of her pet sparrow which used to pick crumbs from her cleavage only a literature professor would come up with a pseudonym like that <laughs> um, so he says, yeah, um, he was re- he'd been reading about tattooing. He, it, was, it was kind of strange, but he thought, I'm going to give it a go. As a university professor of English, I knew nothing about the means and methods of tattooing, how to learn this arcane and mysterious art. A small nutty fellow named Larry, himself tattooed heavily all over his body, told me that a wine in a flop house 
an ex-tattoo artist, wanted to sell a foot liquor, foot locker filled with acetate stencils, old pigments, encrusted machines, and some flash designs to be hung on the walls. Um, I brought the smelly stuff for $35. I then purchased a, co- a correspondence course in tattooing from some con artist in Rockford, Illinois, and learned next to nothing from its pages. That con artist is Milton Zeiss. <laughs> <laughs> Also, once again, uh, people getting scammed by tattoo courses, time is a flat circle. Yeah, well, um, (laughs) uh, uh, Sammy's very, uh, like, irritated about um, Zeiss. He basically says, look, I bought this course, and, like, he said, Zeiss told me later that I was the only person ever to actually read it and follow it and do what it said. Um... And he says that, uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote. Um, he basically says that Zeiss um, was was someone who just assembled uh, like nonsense from, um, from, from lies that tattooers had told him. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, here we go. So he says, uh, the lessons, uh, the material seemed fascinating in the moment, but Einstein reveals it was not at all informative. And Milton Zeiss knew very little about tattooing. The lessons were extremely dull, or at least it seemed so from my frosty pinnacle of a PhD in English literature and an off-repeated life drawing cast at the Art Institute of Chicago. You can see like the typical academic, like, I know fucking better than this nonsense. Honestly, um, he, he sounds like an abrasive dickhead, I won't he lie. Does, doesn't he? Doesn't he very much? Um, the tattoo lessons were finished faithfully, even down to practicing alphabets and lettering. Zeiss later told me I was the only one who'd ever finished the course. He was only a merchant, not a tattooist, and the course was made up of everything that the con men tattooists had told him. Now, Zeiss was a tattooist, so that's not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was he was primarily a salesman, but he did work as a tattooer in the, fa- in the fairs. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's not quite true. He then says, learning to tattoo from a book is just about as successfully as accomplished as learning to swim from your living room. <laughs> like... I hate, I hate to hand it to him because he does seem like an absolute dickhead, but he's so funny. It's <laughs> so good, isn't he, funny? Yeah. He's he's angry and annoyed. He thinks he's better than everybody else. <laughs> hey, are you enjoying the show? If you really like Beneath the Skin and you want to help support us, you can do so on Patreon for little as five quid a month. You can help make this show possible. Help us buy research materials. So, if you like the show and you want to support us, consider kicking us a few quid a month. And you'll get everything from bonus episodes to Q&As, and you can even vote on what tattoo I'll get when we reach a certain subscriber count. Matt, have you got anything to say? You should really definitely uh, fund the Patreon because tattoo history is massive, right? Deep, wide, complicated. We're covering some big hit topics on the main feed, but on the Patreon subscriber-only feed, we'll be getting into some really more interesting niche deep topics you don't want to miss out on and honestly the chance to kind of decide what thomas gets on his body is probably just a once in a lifetime opportunity subscribe chuck us a few quid don't miss out on the chance to ruin thomas's body forever but um around uh, around this time is this when he starts collaborating with kinsey yes almost exactly actually and and kinsey becomes um, very interested in uh what his access to, to to men being tattooed can can tell him. Mm-hmm. So he gets into tattooing, um, and Kinsey start and he, he sets up a, um, a little uh, initially tattooing from home, and then he sort of sets up a little tattoo studio. Um, the the tattoo studio, at least the second one he had, um, had a um, specific area at the back for sex in it, and had a glory hole mm-hmm. um, in the shop. Um, Justin Spring describes uh that shop by saying um yeah like there was this uh yeah this space in the back of the shop which the the workbench was set particularly at the right height for rigorous fucking um um yeah uh there was an easy chair a waist high workbench for rough fucking a toilet area rigged with not only with a series of peepholes but a glory hole through which men could engage for anonymous sex there's a story that he tells in his book about a guy coming in, uh, going to use the toilet, not flushing, and then him realizing that he's been, after t- getting tattooed, jacking off in the tattoo studio. 
<laughs> and he becomes Kinsey becomes really interested in this kind of you know sexual account of tattooing. Um, so so Sammy does a survey, and he says, um, uh, people generally do one of four things after a first tattoo: they get drunk, get in a fight, or get a piece of ass, or go home and stand in front of a mirror and jack off. What did you do? <laughs> it's not. A, it's it's not a statistically significant sampling. Out of hundreds of returnees, these were the results. One, boys who came back and said, either with questioning or without, that after their tattoo they went out and fucked a girl. 1,724. <laughs> boys who got in a fight following a tattoo. 635. Uh, boys who said all they did was get drunk afterwards. Um, 231. Although over 800 of question one, who has sex, also said this. Mm-hmm. And then number four, admitting they masturbated while admiring their new tattoo, four. Uh, sorry, uh, 879. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a lot more significant than four. Um, yeah. So yeah, <laughs> top tip. If you want to uh, get laid, uh, get a fresh tattoo. Although I can't imagine it be very sanitary, but you know. <laughs> um, Modernity so- has gone to the dogs. We care too much about sanitation than lovemaking. Y- y- this, is, this is true. Um, there's no denying, he says, uh, the high sexual significance of tattooing for many people. On a cold, snowy evening, a sailor came into my shop all alone and got his first tattoo, an anchor on his forearm. After it was finished and bandaged, he asked if there were a head in the place. I told him where the toilet was. He went back to it. He was gone a little too long to urinate and not long enough for something, something more weighty. Moreover, when he came back, waved goodbye and left, I was struck by one curious thing. I'd not heard the toilet flush. I went back to investigate... <laughs> The sailor had masturbated and spread the still steaming ejaculate all over the cold cement floor. Kinsey was quite interested in this confirmation of our jointly developed theories about the tattoo, about tattoos and the assertion of masculine status, narcissism, and the aftermath of a first tattoo. Graphic proof, Kinsey said, and it happened right under your nose. Well, not exactly, I said. <laughs> oh, um, God. So Sammy develops this typology, actually, of, of tattooing, um, of, of what he, of, of, if the number varies between 28 and 32 reasons, depending on what um, version of the story that he tells, um, but basically concludes that all tattooing is about sex. And to which I say, maybe that's just a you thing, Sammy. Yeah, it's a bit of confirmation bias going on right there. Bit, yeah, a bit of confirmation bias. The kind of people that are coming into his shop clearly begin to seek him out as well. Um, so of the people that come to seek him out though, um, one of them is Cliff Raven, uh, young Cliff Ingrams, uh, art school graduate. Um, the other is Don Ed Hardy after Sammy moves from Chicago to Oakland, California. Um, and as we've mentioned, I think before, when we talked about the Ed Hardy clothing line, the, um, the introduction of Ed, Ed Hardy to Japanese tattooing was through this bookish professor. Um, who had a kind of academic interest in tattooing as much as a personal one. So S- S- um, Sammy had also been taught, after he after he took this correspondence course, he sought out the work of Armand Dietzel, this Norwegian tattoo artist in Milwaukee, um, who, who was a real incredibly interesting artist in his own right. Um, so all of the kind of tattoo history links, or many of the tattoo history links, let's not say all, but many of the tattoo history links, um, f- that Ed Hardy then filters into the mainstream through um, his publications come, or at least are bolstered by uh, Sammy. Uh, Armand Diesel, famously the inspiration for the very first Beneath Skin shirt, which I am wearing right now. Me too. We both wearing. We both wearing that today. Oh, there. See, sign that it's we print on very good quality T-shirts. The next <laughs> T-shirts are going to be shipping soon for anyone who bought one. Um, and we will we will have a special exclusive third shirt available next year at Brighton Tattoo Convention. So put it in your calendars. Um, the the other people that come into his shop, and again, given that all I've told you, you may find this surprising, were the Hells Angels. So when he moved his shop to um to Oakland, uh after basically he got he was tattooing initially in the summer, as I said, uh, out of hours um or out of the term and it got to the point where A, the university found out he was doing it, and B, he said he earned as much money in a week tattooing as he did in a month as a university lecturer. Again, I can relate. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, academia is not, it's not a good paying career. It's an admirable no, he, one, though. 
Thank you. And and he wrote to, he wrote to Gertrude Stein, well, he wrote to Alex Petoklas actually to sort of celebrate that moment. Said that that was the moment I knew I was a tattooist and not an academic anymore. But when he moves um, when he moves to Oakland, uh, he becomes the tattoo artist to the Hell's Angels, right? Which is kind of amazing. So um, uh, again, I'll read you here. So um, he he said I began to feel. That tattooing, uh, that living in California and tattooing, there was merely a matter more of the same, the same routines and clientele there'd been in Chicago. The young men still wanted the traditional tattoos. The movement towards decoration to cover the whole body had not yet begun. In Oakland, I showed Ed Hardy some preliminary sets of tattooing. He became, went on to become one of the best two in the country. Um, I was pleased to have a small part in his development. Um, as 1970 drew closer, there was a change. More hippies became began to come into the shop, and with them came additional problems. I'd always been careful about antisepsis and autoclaving the needles or sterilising them in a pressure cooker at home, since my autoclave was a huge old-fashioned one large enough to hold a collie, and the noise and popping of steam it made was enough to frighten away anyone entering the shop. But the majority of hippies had hepatitis. Oh, Yeah, not... Hippies in the late 50s, early 60s, not the... Not the most sanitary people. Not the most sanitary people. For the for the joyful needle passed around the happily humming circle, all too often carried the little bugs from one vein to another, and hepatitis demanded an extra long time for sterilization. Then, too, in 1968, I was discovered by the Hells, no apostrophe, angels. These group of aging rebels suddenly found in my shop they could get their symbols, the winged skull with Hells Angels written curving above it and the chap's name underneath, about one third the amount they paid elsewhere and as with the other youth gangs in chicago the word flashed around in a sense i became the official tattoo artist for them all um i put on swastikas and iron crosses the ss symbol one percent which referred to someone saying that only one percent of all motorcyclists were outlaws the brown pilot's wings indicating buggery on a man had been performed red wings to mean cunnilingus on a menstruating woman or black wings the same on a black woman 13 for the letter M, 13 for the letter M, a marijuana smoker, DFFL, dope forever, forever loaded. Um, and he bec- become, um, yeah, tat- he become, yeah, he's become the kind of go-to tattooer for the Hells Angels. Something that becomes interestingly important um, later on. So the, the guy, Sonny Barger, who's one of the founders of the Hells Angels, he, he, he rings up Sammy one evening. He says, look, I need, I need to come in. And Sammy says, look, it's late. I just got home. Sonny says, we'll make it worth your while. Can you come? And basically, um, Sammy turns up at his shop and the Hells Angels are there with a, with a guy who's been beating the fuck up, who they've tied up. And this guy, this guy who the Hells Angels have got and beaten has gotten a Hells Angels tattoo, even though he's not in the Hells Angels. Oh. And, and they're like... Um, uh, he's got our tattoo on his arm, one guy said. He ain't no angel. Cover it up, another said. Black it out completely. Hold up, hold on a minute, I said. Technically, this is mayhem. Tattooing under duress. He'll have to sign a release. <laughs> I wrote one out in a hurry, stating the undersigned wanted to have his tattoo blacked out. Is that so, I asked. The frightened young man gulped and nodded and signed with trembling fingers. I blacked out the design with each of the angels taking turn, holding the needle briefly and jabbing it as hard as he could in his skin. After Sonny paid me, they threw the young man into a small enclosed truck and climbed in after him. I heard later what happened. Um, and I'm not going to quote exactly what happened, but it's not nice. Um, yeah, so this gay English professor was the go-to tattooer for the Hells Angels. Um, isn't that interesting, Thomas? Yeah, that's like very strange bedfellows, I will say. Yeah, although only if you don't understand, and if you have a kind of slightly incorrect image of both of those groups, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, like, he, as a tattooer, though, right? So he was actually a really interesting tattooer. He, he, he was, his, his art was very um, beautiful. Like, he, he had... Um, murals painted on his walls of his apartments at a time as i said when being gay was illegal um of of gay sex he he took a lot of photographs self-portraits um of him dressed up as a sailor with very kind of beautiful 
clipped moustache. There's mm-hmm. an amazing portrait of him in the Obscene Diary where he is dressed as a sailor, beautifully kind of, you know, uh, clipped moustache, writing with a pen, but also sucking a dick at the same time, which I feel is like the perfect image of him. Yeah. He's, he's, perf- he's performing all these roles. Mm-hmm. Um, Kinsey, he staged orgies for Kinsey, which were recorded, which are still under embargo at the Kinsey Institute. Um, mm-hmm. Even researchers can't go and look at them. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, basically, um, again, I, I was increasingly frustrated by by the passing of time and by age. Mm-hmm. Um, it got to 1970 um, and he got robbed. His shop mm. got robbed. Um, so he was running a shop called Anchor Tattoo in Oakland. Yeah. Um, perhaps to the present moment, I would still be sitting in the Anchor Tattoo shop in dingy Oakland, fiddling with, fidd- fiddling with the soldering needles and the mixing of pigments and the bullshitting of customers, were it not for three events that changed everything, perhaps for the better, perhaps not. I was strong-armed three times in the shop, um, a quick movement, an arm around my neck, while a hand fumbled in my pocket for my wallet, his confederate unhooked and made off with a small colour TV, leaving me weak and shaken and so nervous I could hardly call the fuzz. The second time, not so violent, but stealing my wallet from the place where I thought I could keep it. And the third. But why bother? I decided that three times was enough and perhaps the fourth occasion I would not be so lucky. There might be a knife or a bullet and who would want that? The shop next door, a pawn shop run by an elderly Jew called Herman Cartoon, had been several times the victim uh, and between my own second and third experiences, poor Herman was shot and killed. Um, I, tur- I, t- I tore down the place I, um, I'd built. His friend Milt Holt said, I've been thinking you should have quit a couple of years ago. This area is too, too dangerous. I decided it wasn't. In Ma- March 1970, I locked the door for the last time, retired to my house in Berkeley. Phil Sparrow, in effect, was killed. Um, so he was, yeah, sad. Um, he said... For the first few months, I was miserable. Um, I'd lost every semblance of authority I ever had. In the classrooms while I was teaching, I'd been subject only to the suggestions of a department head or dean. In a tattoo shop, I'd been the boss for 15 years. If I didn't want to tattoo a person, if he was too drunk or obnoxious or offensive, I'd tell him to get the hell out. Now that was all gone. No one has to do anything I ordered. In fact, there was no one to order, right? So he was he's always had this idea that he was better than people and superior, yeah. and then all of a sudden... He's not in charge. Um, uh, but then he says, I had the last chance to look around me at Berkeley, finally forced to the opinion that, excluding the university, it was the home of the second rate. <laughs> Just like so sardonic, so like incredible. Lo- I love a, love a bitchy queen. That's all I'll say. Love a bitchy queen. Oh, he's the bitchiest of queens. After, after, so, so stuck about something to do, he, he began... Um, really leaning into something he'd already been doing for a while in 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 lead, lead uh, in leaning into basically pulp fiction writing um so again he'd started this alongside his literary career under the pseudonym of Phil Andros and Phil Andros that kind of writer character of his um although he'd been writing as Phil Andros since the 1920s continued you know for another 8 or or 10 or so years after his retirement from tattooing um and some of these books were coming out as late as the 1980s there's a a really nice moment in one of his novels actually though where um he talks about himself like or or sort of alludes one of the characters says um listen back in chicago i knew a cat who was a university professor uh, and got tired of it and became a tattoo artist which is about as far from academia as you can get and that's before the age of the of the dropout, and without acid, that's nonconformity for you. And it all came from his head, not from beards, moustaches, long hair, or reading Steppenwolf, or from dropping acid. <laughs> like just at, at every single turn, he manages to say he's better than everyone in the funniest way possible. Yeah, he hates hippies because they need acid to be nonconformists. Like he hates academics because. They're boring. Like he's he hates Berkeley because, like you know, it's the home of the second rate. Himself not included, of course. Mm. Like he he would he would he would very much hate this hat, this new hat that I just got. <laughs> <Your> BMW hat. 
It's a dead. It's a Grateful Dead BMW hat. <laughs> there we go. Yeah, I don't think he was a fan of the hippies. Um, <laughs> but I don't know. Like he's this. He's just annoyed. Like because he's he's in a diff. Like the the world that he helped create right is the world that I, I i definitely think i'm better than everybody but the world that that he created is the world that i live in right which is this moment in which you can be all of these things at once yeah and you couldn't back in the 1920s 30s 40s or 50s or even 60s or 70s you couldn't be a gay fiction novelist an academic social scientist a literature professor a tattoo artist and a like gay nymphomaniac like those had to be separate lives um and all of those bits of his life didn't fit together um, for anyone else other than him. And I think like, you know, that's the beauty and the tragedy of his life, really. I mean, he, he died, as I said, in 93, basically in squalor and poverty. Um, and and, and thank, thankfully, his friends um, made sure to keep his material safe. And they did do for, for nigh on 20 years until, because they knew someone would come looking for it. You know, that someone, as I said, was um, was Justin Spring. And following on from Justin Spring, there's been lots of interest in his work. His archives uh, are, some of it's at the Kinsey Institute. Um, it's, but he was this, um, as I said, like, he, he was, ahead of his time is not really a useful term, because of course it's impossible, but but he lived in ways that weren't possible uh, during his lifetime. You know, yeah, he was kind of he was very much like seemed like a man out of step in every aspect of his life, and like trying to hold all those contradictions together was what kind of forced him to. You know, I was like, well, I'm better than everyone. I'm different. I have all these like different things whirling around above me what am i going to do i'm going to do the thing that's going to put me on the furthest away from the middle and that's tattooing yeah 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 and 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 for all of the kind of you know cynical um i'm going to become a tattooer so i can meet hot hot sailors he did have a deep respect for it as i said you know he wanted to do it properly he was clearly one of these kind of guys that we've mentioned a few times uh who were obsessive he collected when he when he was going to become a tattooer, he's like, I'm going to learn how to do it. I'm going to become a really great tattoo artist. I'm going to like train myself to do it. And I'm going to think about in that kind of academic way, what the, what the problems with this are. And I'm going to try and rectify them myself. And I'm going to record everything I do. Like, um, that approach, like for all of its, you know, irritability. And he, he does come across really as an arsehole. <laughs> you know, he would have been a very, difficult man to be around um but he's clearly deeply funny he has he's really romantic like there's a deep romanticism very filthy about the way he writes about sex and the way he writes about tattooing but it's not i mean we've we've sort of joked about it a bit today obviously for obvious reasons but it's not gratuitous like he really loves it like he really thinks it's magical um in 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 the section of his um autobiography uh, about about his tattooing journey, it's called the mystique of the tattoo. Let us imagine you're walking barefoot down a dusty country lane, hot and tired because the bastard made you get out of his Porsche when you refused to let him have his way with you. I mean, there's a specific. Let's imagine that specific example, <laughs> Sammy. There's a there's a glade to your left, and you leave leave the road. Soon you hear the splash and chuckle of a running stream, a waterfall. And see ahead a sunny spot of greenery and a pool. But someone's got there before you. Through the leafy screen, you see a naked body tanned to the waist. One knee is raced. He's stepping out of his trousers. Full of Whitmanesque fancies, perhaps even seeing a Greek youth who's just come from the games, you allow yourself a dream. And he turns so that you can see his left side. And what is that on his upper arm? A mark, a shadow. Good God, a tattoo, right? Um, so he. He loves tattooing and finds it strange and sexy. He's annoyed about the existing scholarship. As I said, there's a whole chapter that's basically a literature review of him going, Hans Ebertston doesn't know anything about tattooing. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, like, uh, all, you know, the best books are in German. Like all this, you know, all this stuff that, that I and others have said 
since you know he was really one of the first people to to say um and it and it comes although it comes from this irascible place of self-loathing and you know failure it's also from a place of deep love and respect and 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 romanticism and kindness like it's such an interesting it's an interesting figure i, I did a talk about him as a compliment to a, a chicago art theater group who were doing a performance piece based on his work they performed a bit of it in london and i did a kind of intro talk and my talk for that was called a, a life of successful failure because I think that, as I said, he, he he exists as this sort of consistent failure, but but in his failures, like the rest of us, got to succeed, right? Like he got to be this brave, um, loving, exciting, exploratory writer, like sex, sexual partner, tattoo artist, like historian social theorists, like all of these things, um, he, he he sort of failed at to some degree. But in his wake, you know, I think that the whole industry gets to be a bit better. And I think, you know, that's the story in a way that that, that he tells of Ed and Ed tells of him, you know, that, that it was going into his shop and being introduced to books about Japanese tattooing that changed the way Ed thought about tattooing and therefore the, rate, the, the way that everyone else did. Um, sp- spring... Spring talks in the introduction to Secret Historian about putting together these pieces from footnotes and then going, what happened to all his stuff? And then finding it and being able to put together the story of this astonishing man who, had he lived in a different moment, would have been much more celebrated in his lifetime, I think. And, you know, and as you said, it doesn't really make any sense that this literate, frustrated English professor was the guy that would black out, like, gang tattoos on young kids who'd wronged the hell's angels but of course the only reason that's surprising is because these kind of stories are not the kind of stories people know or understand about the histories of tattooing of gay life or of the hell's angels come to that matter right um but as they as they are put back into the public conversation as we're able to say to people you know listen to this podcast like one of the most important tattooers in the history of Western tattooing was a like gay literature professor from Chicago who had a glory hole in his shop. Like, I think that's probably surprising to people. Yeah. Yeah. No, definitely. Yeah. As you said, you didn't know where this was going to go. These conversations, right? Yeah. Like, like I, I know, or well, I knew a little bit about Phil Sparrow beforehand and like, particularly through his involvement with Alfred Kinsey, but it's, it's just fascinating, like particularly at that moment in time, like you said, you know, he to the outside observer is very much a footnote in a lot of other people's history. But when you look at him as the focal point, it's just so influential. Yeah. And um, he's the man who gave us Don Ed Hardy. He's the man who gave us Don Ed Hardy. Well, to some degree. Yeah. Like he's he's the man. He's the man that gave us. Yeah, who who gave us a really like unique perspective about the the take on um on what it meant to be a tattooer. And 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 this book, as I said, like the Bad Boys and Tattoo Books, is really the only book up until really recently, you know, that was an account of tattooing by a tattooer that was that was also academically and historically situated. Mm-hmm. And I think that's it that like outside of the actual tattoos, like that's his real importance is that he was one of the first people if not the first person to have that desire to understand tattooing not just as an art form but as a social phenomenon as well well i know you'll disagree it's a medium not a phenomenon but well no i think yeah i think so you know there's there's chapters in the book called art and the tattoo he does actually take i he does actually take a quite interesting parallel to some of the things i i draw upon you know i i I am inspired by his thinking where he wants to say that the kind of like quote-unquote primitive tattooing is not the same as what he's doing um like he also says there's a there's a good uh a good uh thing here where he says um i just literally just had it uh he basically says that tattooists are like like they they lie about what they do in order to um in order to make themselves more more interesting and to uh to up their prices <laughs> time is a flat circle time is a flat circle 
Time is a flat circle. Um, his first tattoo was done by um, this really uh, important, interesting uh, uh, Chicago tattooer called Tats Thomas. Yeah, yeah take your time. I'd say we'll end on this as well. I think still true, again, still true today, right? The mystery, the otherness of the tattoo world are things for which many of the artists themselves are responsible. They sometimes deliberately cloud the nature of their work in order to create the mystique to justify their often exorbitant, <laughs> exorbitant prices. More, they sense the disapproval of the uh, patristic element and are continually giving out tales calculated to raise the procession profession to a socially acceptable level like the late Tats Thomas in Chicago who archly claimed to do most of his work in hospitals on eyeballs a tattoo artist finds it difficult to consider his occupation objectively if he did intelligently he might be the first to admit the practice is primitive barbarous and out of place in a theoretically enlightened civilization to put a colour design under the skin is that not something we associate with savage tribal practices uh, rather than with a computer society which can send men to the moon. On the other hand, is tattooing any more barbarous than piercing the ears to wear earrings, putting rings on fingers, red lacquer on toes and fingernails, rouge on cheeks, colours on eyelids, dyes on hair? If those quaint habits are all matters of personal taste and preference, then so is the decoration of skin with tattoos. It would hardly seem to involve morality or law at all. Right. Um, so I, I love that. Um, and I, th- I think he's right. You know, he's, he's walking these and thinking through these things that I'm still trying to make sense of in his wake, uh, 30 years later, you know, from when this book was published and, and, and a hundred years since he was born. Um, and I'm very, I'm very humbled to be in his wake. Um, and I'm, you know, loads more we could have said about him. The, the, the books that I've mentioned, I'll just quickly quote them all so people can go look them up. Um, so Bad Boys and Tough Tattoos from 1990. Um, A Secret Historian by Justin Spring from 2010. The Lost Autobiography of Samuel Stewart um, and Chapters from an Autobiography, uh, both of which are uh, variations of the same book. The the most recent one, edited by um, Jeremy Moldering, is probably the best (laughs) version. Those Letters from the Dental Column are published as Phil Sparrow Tells It All. uh, again, edited by Def- Jeremy Mulderig. Um, and yeah, you can pick up, obviously, uh, also Dear Sammy, Letters from Gertrude Stein and Alice P. Toklas, which is his correspondence uh, with them, um, as well as his his many books published as Phil Andros um, through the uh, th- uh, 30s through to the 1980s. Yeah, check him out. Um I recommend if you if you want to splurge on a really beautiful and can find a copy book, the Obscene Diary is amazing because it's got all of his filthy photos and copies of his stud file and um, drawings of his tattoo flash, etc. In, um, but yeah, I'm really happy to um, to share a bit of Sammy's life with everyone listening today. Yeah, and thanks for sharing it with me as well. I really, you know, like I said, it was, he's an artist that I was familiar with but didn't know a huge amount. Um, so thank you, Matt, and. Also, want to thank everyone who is listening. Um, if you enjoyed the show and you want to hear more from us, um, highly recommend checking out the Patreon. Like we said, we now have a tier that's three pounds a month. Uh, you get an extra bonus episode, and you'll get access to our upcoming Ink Master series. Um, if you, you know, enjoy the stuff we're talking about, check us out on Instagram beneath the skin pod. We post a lot of cool stuff there and you get all the updates for the show first there. It's the quickest way to see what's happening and want to give a special shout out to our patrons as well at the 10 pound and above tier at 15 pounds. You get a signed copy of Matt's book painted people um, and at 10 pounds and above you get a shout out on the show. So without further ado, I want to thank Morpheus Ravenna, Chris Block, Shit Jesus, Kirsten Wright, Kathleen Burkhardt, Jess, Jess Goodman, James Schick, and Charlie Lightning. Thank you to all of our £10 above patrons. And thank you to all of our patrons. Like I said earlier on, we are now fully independent. So this show is supported by you directly. Um, without your support, it isn't possible. So I want to thank you very much. And if you can't afford to support the show financially, leave us a review or share it with a friend that's how you know we've gotten most of our listeners as people saying oh i know this cool show about tattoos um but yeah thanks very much from me tom and i feel like ma has something to say as well 
No, thank you to everybody uh, as well. And yeah, we were super, super touched that we won um, this award, which was not listener voted for. It was an industry award. Um, but we know that um, the fact that we can do this show at all and the fact that you guys support what we do, send both of us lovely DMs and interesting things and questions you have and stuff you want to know more about um, is the reason we keep making it and the reason that, yeah, we've been able to, to, to keep doing it. And so, um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Thank you.